You guys can be seated. Um, I, so the American Revolution, the War of Independence, it was the culmination of actually the first great awakening. And uh, historians have looked at, have studied the Declaration of Independence. And they've said that every one of the grievances and principles that are listed in the Declaration of Independence were first preached in American pulpits, right? At the conclusion of the, Amer of the successful American Revolution, the British, some British uh, leaders were, were uh, sitting around talking and they said that if it weren't for the pastors in America, we would have won that war, meaning the British would have won. And they called the American pastors that helped lead the, the fight for independence because they were so instrumental in the victory, they called them the black-robed regiment. Because back in the day, they wore black robes when they preached. There's a statue in the United States Capitol in the, the Hall of Heroes of uh, John Peter Muhlenberg. John Peter Muhlenberg was a pastor of a church in Virginia. And there was a day when he gave a famous speech or a famous message to his congregation out of the book of Ecclesiastes where he said, there's a time for war and a time for peace. The time for peace is now over and the time for war has come. And he took off his black robe and underneath it was the war of a continental army officer. And he asked the men who were with him to join him as he picked up his musket and walked to the back of the church. And on that day, he raised a company of 300 soldiers and fought throughout the revolution um, and, and uh, was one of hundreds of pastors that helped us win the revolution. Well, today in America, the good news is that pastors all over the country are waking up. There's pastors that refuse to wake up and they're going by the wayside. But there are pastors that are waking up and have woken up. And one of those pastors, and perhaps Rob, you were awake all along, but I didn't know your name until a couple years ago. But one of the greatest black robe regiment preachers we have in our nation today is Pastor Rob McCoy. He leads, he's the, he's the pastor of Godspeed Calvary Chapel in Thousand Oaks, California. And uh, Rob, you correct me if I get this wrong, but along comes this thing called COVID. And Rob is running a really good sized church. <clears throat> But the city of Thousand Oaks says, thou shalt not meet. Rob took a look at the scriptures and says, that's not what my Bible says. I think we shall meet. <laughs> and the local health department began to assess fines against his church of thousands of dollars every day. And as those fines began to rack up, Rob's congregation also began to grow. And he's, he went to several services and now has thousands of people in his church. Because just like I said about Mario Murillo, people are hungry for the truth. And they saw in him a man of courage who wasn't afraid to speak the truth. So we're blessed and honored today to be able to hear from Pastor Rob McCoy. And guys, would you put your hands together and welcome him to the platform, please. Thank you for the kind words. Bless you. There you go, sir. Thanks, brother. I, uh, I want to speak to Pastor Andrew Womack in that um, my favorite definition, definition of a friend is that when the whole world goes out, they come in. That's what you've been to me. 
Um, when we made that stand, we were a penny looking for change. And you were one of the first in the country to give us uh, a platform that others would hear our story. And I can't, I can't thank you enough. That he'd invite me. Um, I feel like a pair of brown shoes with a black tuxedo. I, uh, all these speakers are in the book of who's who and I'm in the book of who's he. I, um, I'm grateful for each and every one of you. I, I, I've had so many of you come up and tell me you're praying for me. I've never been busier in all my life and had more demands and I've never been at more peace. And I know that's because of prayer. Don't stop doing that. The Bible says that the fervent faithful prayers of a righteous man accomplish great things. And that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father ever living to make intercession for us. And intercessory prayer is the highest form of prayer. I... Um, for those of you who don't know me, I, 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 pastor, uh, I pastor currently a church in Thousand Oaks, California, which is in Ventura County, um, which exists in the People's Republic of California <laughs> under Governor Mussolini. <laughs> I ran for the California State Assembly and I won the primary the Republican Party spent a million dollars against me in the primary and I'd been a Republican longer than I'd been a Christian, longer than I'd been a husband, longer than I'd been a father, longer than I'd been a pastor. I ended up beating their candidate. I ran for the general election. The Democrats spent $6 million against me and they lost seats they were never expecting to lose. and. Um, I got to speak at the Republican, the California Republican National Convention, and I told them, why are you inviting me? I lost. And they said, that's because you took 6.3 million bullets for the party. And it was the last time that the Democrats didn't hold a supermajority in the upper and lower house because they had lost seats that they weren't intending to lose because they spent so much money trying to keep a pastor out of office. I was tired and I had run in such a way as to win. We had garnered 650 volunteers. One man in particular, his name's Tom Hunt. I said goodbye to him a couple days ago. He was in the hospital, he'd had a stroke. I went to visit him and his face was paralyzed. He was in the church the first day I arrived. He's always been my biggest fan. And, and through a, a paralyzed face where his lips were drooping and hard to hear him articulate words, he, he said, Rob, if God heals me of this, I'm gonna make phone calls for you and you're gonna run for office. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and God healed him and he kept reminding me you need to run for office. And I agreed. And we did win the primary, we lost the general, 
And he said to me, Rob, you need to run for the seat that your opponent vacated for the city council. And I said, Tom, that's like telling a woman who just gave birth that you want her to get pregnant again. (laughs) Can I get a little rest here, you know? (laughs) He insisted, he said, Rob, we'll we'll do the hard work. I had two men that walked 30,000 homes. uh, Ron Gruber, Nick Ochoa, retired officers, and Tom Hunt making phone calls. He wouldn't just make 60,000 phone calls over four elections. In the course of making political phone calls, he would lead hundreds of people to Christ in those calls. On election night, I was losing by 178 votes. And I just thought, Lord, I'm getting a little tired of you. (laughs) I hate losing. I was an all-American swimmer. I qualified for the national, uh, for the Olympic trials. I I was all-American water polo. I I know it's hard to believe I look more like a buoy now, but I was a... (laughs) But I hate to lose. And Tom told me that night, he says, Rob, you're gonna win by a little less than 70 votes tomorrow. I go, how in the world do you know that? Are you Nostradamus? He said, I made phone calls today and I calculated people who are returning their ballots by hand. And he was right, I won by 52 votes. You know who you call someone who wins by 52 votes? The winner, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I won re-election by over 3,000. And then on, on November 8th, 2018, I was asleep in my bed, my wife and I, and there was a knock on our sliding glass door, which no one ever enters or has ever knocked on, which was a little bit frightening. I pulled back the curtain to see my daughter She said, Daddy, there's been a shooting at the borderline, which is a country western dance hall for young people. She said, a gunman went in there. You need to go. So as an elected official, and I was at the time mayor pro tem, on December 2nd, I would become mayor of the city. I drove down to the command center and watched these children who had rabbited out of the building when they had broken the glass of the windows and ran for safety, they showed up at the, the triage center, bloodied, it was an awful sight to behold. Parents gathering late into the night as they were calling the number, wondering if their child was in any of the hospitals in the county. And the ones that couldn't get word were scared and they remained with us and we realized they were shivering and cold so we set up at the Alex Fiore Teen Center, a place where they could gather and our church and the Red Cross and others brought blankets and cots and coffee. And as I was driving home at two o'clock in the morning, the Lord said, and I had been a Ventura County Sheriff's chaplain, the Lord said, go back and stay with those families through the night. So I turned around and I went back. And then the fires began as our city was encircled by these horrendous fires. It seemed as though we had had a a visit from hell itself. 
We had to evacuate our elderly. It was a day from hell. I remember going through the evening and the early morning and I remember the public information officer coming in and saying, Mayor Pro Tem, you need to go out and do media interviews. And I said, call the mayor. And he said, he's a fireman, he's fighting the fires. And he gave word that you're supposed to do the interviews. I, I hadn't done an interview in my life. I walk out in front of a field of cameras. And I remember just saying, evil has visited our city. Please pray for us. I remember a couple of reporters crying. They, they saw the sincerity in my voice. That night we held a vigil. I remember one woman who had been my opponent in the second race came up and hugged me in the foyer of our Civic Arts Plaza as we were entering the building. I waited out front like we do as pastors to greet congregants. I wanted to greet the citizens of the city and hug them. And she came up to me and she hugged me. She was my vehement enemy in the campaign, but she came up and she hugged me. She said, Rob, I wish you had been there when my daughter was murdered. I didn't even know that had happened. She said, Rob, you're not my enemy, you're my friend, and I was so proud of you today. I officiated two of the funerals for the, two of the victims that were from my church, and I was with every family member. I was the only council member that was with, the, with every family member when they were notified by the sheriffs that their child was one of the victims. I told them to hope for the best and to prepare for the worst and the guttural screams, and the desperation. And we endeavored with them through every step of the way. And then I became mayor. We lost an officer, Officer Ron Helis. His wife Karen's a friend, she attends our church. He had been shot by a CHP officer who just sprayed and prayed and didn't realize he'd shot one of his own. The gunman ended up killing himself. Karen was left as a widow. We dedicated a park to a portion of the freeway to Ron Helis, and we dedicated a park to the victims on the anniversary of the day, which was a pretty remarkable accomplishment. I was beloved in the city, and, and I, was, I was set to be reelected hands down. No one questioned a pastor in politics any longer. And then the governor of the state, under the disguise of a virus that has a 99.7% survival rate, decided to shutter the businesses of our community, cause the, the abused to be quarantined with their abusers, the elderly to die alone, 65% of our small businesses to be destroyed, our children's schools to be shuttered, to inject our population with a experimental at best injection. We lost 200 people with a swine flu vaccine and they shut it down. The vaccine adverse reaction site now estimates 40,000 and that's underestimated by, they believe by 98%. 40,000 people have died from this. I travel the country and I ask, how many people have died of COVID that you know of? And very few people raise their hands. But I ask this next question. I say, how many of you know someone who has been permanently injured or has died from the vaccine? And the hands go high. 
I ask the next question. I say, how many of you took the vaccine because you believed in its efficacy or, but, or because you didn't want to lose your job or you wanted to see your grandkids? That's monumental cowardice. I was at the hospital. That man who made 60,000 phone calls for me, that man who made 60,000 phone calls for me, Tom Hunt, I flew in from Phoenix because he was dying. I get to the hospital. I walk in. I have a clergy badge. I've served this hospital for 21 years. I've been a sheriff's chaplain and mayor of the city. And I walked into that hospital and they required a mask. I said, I don't have one. They handed me one. They said, we need to see your vaccine card. I said, I don't have one. They said, they're gonna to need to take a PCR test. I said, I, f I refuse. Well, then you can't come in. I said, let me tell you something. I've sued Ventura County and won and I have no problem suing you. I said, you're gonna get a supervisor and I'm going to remain here and I will be boisterous and embarrassing to your hospital until this is resolved. And you're either gonna get a supervisor or you're going to get police officers to arrest me. And either way, you're gonna have hell to pay. So they bring in a security officer. I go, this is the supervisor. And he says, I'm head of security. And I said, you best go get an administrator because you are infringing on my first amendment inalienable right to care for one of my congregants who is moments from death. I have flown in on an emergency flight to be by his side with his family and your medical apartheid when there is no declared emergency that you want me to play some game with your hospital that has been getting kickbacks over your remdesivir and all the other junk you're pulling. You're gonna let me in. He made a phone call and he waved me in. As I'm walking to the ICU, both the security guard and the two women behind the desk say to me, we're just doing our jobs. And I said, that's what they said in Nazi Germany and you don't. I said, you don't get a pass from me. You don't get off that easy. Because by your just doing your job, family members have been denied access to their loved ones as they've died. And that's because you comply. And, and, it's, and it's time to defy, not comply. Stop just doing your job and submitting to tyranny. It's unacceptable and people are dying. You can see I was a little agitated. But they had the audacity to tell me that when I opened my church that I was a super spreader. Our church is the healthiest in the county. And to tell me I don't love my community 
where do you get off telling me that? And I remember on Palm Sunday when we were going to take communion on our Holy Week, when the governor declared the church to be non-essential but said that abortion clinics were, and in California, we don't just rip the baby apart in the womb of its mother and flush its parts into the sewer systems of the state. No, we harvest the organs before we do that. And abortion's been legal in California long before 73. And it's been estimated we've obliterated and aborted more children in the state of California than the entire population of Canada. And churches posting their black tiles in support of Black Lives Matter, which is supported by Planned Parenthood, I look at that and I think of the stupidity because 13% of the population of America is black. You cut that in half, 5.5% male, 5.5% female. You take the 5.5% female and reduce it to childbearing years, it's 4% of the population of America is responsible for almost 40% of the abortions. It is a holocaust on the black community and, and Planned Parenthood has set up their abortion clinics in the center and in the heartbeat of every black community in America. And it was Margaret Sanger who said, we need to get rid of the Negro problem. You don't believe in Black Lives Matter. You are orchestrating a Holocaust on the black community and you must be held accountable. I'm limited on time. Quit taking it with the clapping thing, will you? <laughs> Bless you guys, I'm kidding. I wanted to show you why it's critical we be involved as Christians. You have been indoctrinated over the last 52 years. I come from a series of churches called Calvary Chapel. We began in 1968 with, with my my mentor and friend who has gone to be with the Lord, Pastor Chuck Smith, he, he broke away from the, the four square churches. He, he, he believed the gifts are for today, they were charismatic. And then when the vineyard broke away, we lost a little bit of our DNA. We still believe the gifts are for today, but we keep them in the closet. <laughs> I was cracking up listening to Lance up here, Lance Wallnow. I had the privilege to have dinner with he and his wife and Cindy Jacobs and her husband at a friend's house, David Lane and Cindy Lane, who have been instrumental in formulating who I am. And in their home, I was mayor of the city at the time. And they said, why don't, why don't you have Lance and Cindy prophesy over you? Now, I'm, I'm gonna be candid with you and I know I'm in a room that's gonna find it offensive, but I seek not to offend, but I have a gift of it, but I, I, uh, <laughs> Bear with me because it, it'll have a good ending. But I considered what they were asking to do, Christian fortune telling. See, you didn't laugh. <laughs> and so what are you gonna say, no? It's like, can we pray for you? As a pastor, you're like, I really wanna go to lunch, but okay. <laughs> and so they lay hands on me and prophesy over me. And Lance is not gonna like this, but I know we talked about Daniel, but I don't remember much of anything else. But it wasn't until our host, Cindy Lane, 
took her phone and said, let's record this when Cindy Jacobs prophesies over you. And now I'm like, ears go up because I'm elected office and this is recorded. And if it's funky, I got to watch out. <laughs> and so I'm listening intently and nothing really concerns me. Fast forward, we're at an American renewal project with pastors. I'm there with Charlie Kirk, uh, David Lane. Yeah. And, um, and Charlie shows up and, and he's hungry and he says, let's go next door to get a bite to eat. He finished speaking. We go next door. And my friend Tom uh, Bengard comes with us and I'm sitting on this side of the table with Tom and Charlie's across the table. And, and I wasn't into social media. I don't have your, your gift. I, 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 I don't know how to reach the masses in that gift. And I wish God had made two of you and none of me, but it's just a, a wonderful gift God's given you. And... Um, and Charlie says, you, you've got great content. You really need to be on social media. And I, I had 20 followers on <laughs> YouTube. I said, Charlie, I don't even know how to do that. And he said, you need live stream equipment. I go, what would that cost? He says, I don't know, 15 grand to get started. And I go, I'll ask the elders because we were hand to mouth. And I had the gift of preaching a church down to a manageable size. The largest church in the Conejo Valley is the church of the people that used to go to our church. <laughs> they come and they go, we love the music, we love the messages, but it's just too political. And I've been doing it for 22 years. I haven't changed at all. That's what I've always done. Well, now it's popular. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> So I said, you know, Charlie, I'll take it before the elders and I'll ask about it. At which point through the course of the dinner, my friend slides over a check and I open it up because Charlie said it costs about $15,000. I open up the check and it's for 15 grand. Tom wrote it. Uh, that's kind of cool. I've never passed an offering bag in my life. I've never asked for a dime. And here's this check. I, I, I put it in my pocket and I'm laying awake and I'm starting to think about Cindy Jacobs. So in the morning, we get down to the breakfast to kind of talk about the event itself. And I asked Cindy Lane, I said, do you have that recording of Cindy Jacobs? She said, yeah. I said, can I listen to it? So she hands it to me. And Cindy said, God, uh, someone's going to donate money to build your audio visual. And you're going to have national prominence across the country. And you'll have inroads into Hollywood. And I thought, this woman has no idea where Thousand Oaks is. It's nowhere near Hollywood. She is a couple hot dogs short of a picnic. Her antenna is not picking up all the stations. <laughs> she didn't have both oars in the water. You know what I'm saying? Her elevator doesn't go to the top floor. But I, at least the first part of it is kind of proven true and I don't have to stone her right away. So I, come on, relax. You're taking me too serious. You'll get to know me if you ever invite me back, which probably is not going to happen. <laughs> so we listened to it and I'm moved by it. And Tom is too. And Tom's wife, Kim, who's very charismatic, is moved by it. And so we buy the equipment, we set it up and then COVID hits and they shut us down. And we didn't know the severity of the virus. And so we were worried about our elderly 65 and older with comorbidities that were locked down. We were bringing them supplies and we wanted to broadcast to them. So we started going five nights a week 
and bringing in doctors to dispel the myths. And we had the diamond princess data and we, we had folks who had insight on it. And we were bringing in people that would give them tangible information so they wouldn't be paralyzed by fear. And, and I remember our first broadcast, it was me and my son-in-law in a love seat with a black backdrop and the camera that we had bought, which was kind of grainy. And it looked like an ISIS beheading video. <laughs> And then overnight it, it exploded and took off. And we had tens of thousands of followers across the country and people were moved and, and encouraged and strengthened. And God started to do something remarkable. And then I was invited to go into Hidden Hills, meeting in these mansions of actors and actresses. I'd be connected with Bobby Kennedy Jr., a lifelong Democrat, Catholic, who my mother was a lifelong Republican, she'd be rolling in her grave. <laughs> he would involve me to be the moderator uh, of Zoom calls with hundreds of people and I would be probably the only Republican and Christian on the call and he'd have me moderate and he would call me the good pastor and he'd ask me to open in prayer. I would watch hundreds of them come to Christ and I have to tell you, our church grew 400% and we baptized more people in a year than the entire population of the church was a year ago. These are people who wouldn't darken the doors of the church. These are atheists, agnostics, Jews, Mormons. I remember one guy was holding up a sign outside I'd helped him get his gun shop open when I was on the council. So he came out to support us when they were gonna fine us and shutter the doors. And, and he held up the sign and it was, I think it made it on national news. It, it said it took this kind of as an expletive. It took this SH to get this atheist to church. Now he's in the second row every Sunday and he's become a believer. <laughs> The reason why is because people's streams of liberty had dried up when they, they filled their skate parks with sand and closed their beaches and shuttered their businesses. So they went upstream and they came to realize that the source, the source of liberty is Jesus. Second Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. The apostle Paul in Galatians said, stand fast therefore in the liberty which Christ has set you free. Liberty is not man's idea, it's God's idea. And the pushback came from the churches when they would invoke Romans 13, the most overused verse in Nazi Germany to silence the church. God appoints all positions of authority. We're to submit to them. It's true. But as Jonathan Mayhew, who was attributed by John Adams having inspired the war of independence, he died in 1866, never to see the war begin or the nation formed. He says the passage goes on to say that those in authority are there for our good. And when they cease to do good, they cease to be the authority. I wasn't a medical doctor and I didn't, I didn't need all the data. 
What I did know is the governor violated the First Amendment. And for all my pastor friends out there, I'm certain you're probably married. If some man came to you and said, your bride is non-essential, I've been married to Michelle for 32 years. You go ahead and try those words on me. You'll be picking up your teeth with your broken arm. I haven't even started my message yet. I got 21 minutes, I'm gonna pull it off. I don't know how to change slides. Do you have a clicker? There we go. That's the Garden of Eden. That's paradise. Everyone say paradise. Paradise. It's where man live with God in righteousness. Righteousness means that we're right with one another. Husbands and wives, you know what that means. There's intimacy when you're right with each other naked and unashamed, you, you know one another's hearts. There's, there's no deception that lies between you. There's, there's a connection on every level. And God walked with man in the cool of the garden, the Ruach, his spirit, walked with man. That was paradise. It was the presence of the Lord. It was called the garden of righteousness, meaning right with God, our creator. And he, he had established parameters. He said, all of it's yours, name it, enjoy it, except for this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For eating of it, dying, you will surely die, present and progressive. We know what happened. Let's go to the next slide. Wait, wasn't there one before that? What'd you do to me? <laughs> oh, you got the snake and yeah, that's what happened. Eve ate first and then Adam ate. And it's funny because Eve ate the apple because she was deceived. And the Lord had commanded Adam to, you know, protect his wife. And yet Adam knew it was wrong, but he wanted Eve more than he wanted God. And so when both of them took a bite of this thing in disobedience to the laws of nature and nature's God, the first thing they did is they blamed each other. When confronted with sin, you can do one of three things, blame others, make excuses, or own it, and repent. Agree with God. Well, neither of them did it. The most honest was the serpent himself. Let's go to the next slide. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them, and the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us and knows good and evil, and now would put his hand and take also the tree of life He'll eat it and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. They were exiled out of paradise to till the ground from which was taken. So he drove them out, he drove man out, and he placed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden in a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the tree of life. I can't read that last part, but it says they were removed from paradise. And now we're out. And the question is, with the next line, how do we get back to paradise? Well, here's the problem with the church. We don't understand the law. 
We've been indoctrinated that, that we've been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The, the law is only there to show us that we can't keep it and, and that we must be saved by grace. It's just to prove that there's no salvation in the observation of the law. That's wrong. The law doesn't save, but it preserves. And there's a very critical component that we have abdicated that has left us in the mess we're in right now in this nation. Our founders understood it, but we do not. Let's go to the next slide. Genesis 15, six. Now listen to this and pay attention, please, because I don't have much time. <laughs> Abraham believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. He was reconnected, reconciled, relangari, to be reconnected with his savior. That's what religion means, relangari, to re reconnect. He was made righteous. There was no division in the friendship and the relationship. And, and how was that established? He believed God. What did he believe God on? His promises, his word. He took him at his word because God's word is true. Let's go. Romans 3. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. And Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We are made righteous by what Christ did, not by what we've done. But to be made righteous we must receive mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve and grace is getting what we don't deserve. But still, God is just and if he extends mercy that we don't get what we deserve, somebody else has to. And that was his son who knowing no sin became sin for us. And he died on the cross in your place and mine. And that is what makes us righteous, not what we've done, but what Christ has done. But what does that do for us in relation to the law? Next portion. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. And what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. The apostle Paul has stated in his writings, in his early writings, he says, I'm a sinner. His last epistle, 2 Timothy, he says he's the chief of sinners. You think he would have improved. In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. The only good thing in Rob McCoy is Jesus Christ. Oh, that was a weak amen. <laughs> You're like, well, I'm very special. I don't understand what you're saying. You are. <laughs> I hope your head gets through the door. <laughs> Brethren, I speak in the manner of men 
that is only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promise made, does not say, and the seeds of many, but as of one. And to your seeds, who is Christ, this I say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance of the law is no longer of promise, but God gave it, help me. Yeah, by promise. Abraham believed God it was accredited to him as righteousness. Here's the question. And this is where Christians need to understand why we need to be in politics. Wait a minute, where are you going with this? Exactly where I said. I set you up. You wanna know why we're supposed to be neck deep in it? Here's the question. If Abraham believed God, it was accredited to him as righteousness. Why then? 430 years later did God give the law to Moses in Sinai. If the law doesn't save, what's the point? Three to five million Jews were enslaved in Egypt, crying out to God for deliver, and he sends an 80-year-old man by the name of Moses who confronts Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, who is God that I should obey him? Doubles the brick output and reduces the materials. And these Hebrews who were crying out for freedom, the three to five million of them, you know what they wanna do now? They wanna kill Moses. People want freedom, they just don't wanna suffer for it. They don't wanna to contribute to its cause. Only one in nine Americans fought in the Revolutionary War. You say you believe in consent of the governed, yet what's the last thing you've ever contributed to? What's the last precinct you've ever walked? What's the last campaign you've ever supported? What have you done? The Bible says pray for kings and those in authority that we would live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. Name for me your five city council members and your school board members and the issues that they're dealing with that would allow your city, your neighbors to live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. And it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast in the deepest ocean if you allow one of these young ones to perish during your watch as your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. And you say, I don't do politics. Politics is dirty. So's the church. I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. Unless Jesus is running for office, you're always voting for the lesser of two evils. Quit making excuses for your apathy. And don't use your eschatology for justification for your apathy as well. It's an unstoppable juggernaut of a one world government and you are standing in opposition to it. And the only reason why I look at the geopolitical horizon is to see the soon return of Christ. Listen, I'm ready for him to come right now. I'm ready for, I've been ready all day. But when he comes, he's gonna find me working. And working not unto selfish means, but unto generations, I will never know. 
A nation goes great whose citizens plant trees of the shade they will never know. What have we done for these generations? The greatest hope we give them is pre-trib, pre-millennial, there'll be a rapture. That's why you wonder why there's no young people in church. It's because it's self-fulfilling prophecy. Jeremiah 18 says, if I intend evil for a nation and they repent, I'll relent from the evil I intend. If I intend good for a nation and they relent from doing good, I'll relent from the good I intended. You all still have a role in it. I'm pre-trib, pre-millennial, but I am not in the camp of using it as justification for apathy to justify my non-participation in the process of future generations hope. And so when Paul wrote this, he was pointing out that the law was given specifically for a reason and watch this, next slide please. What is the purpose of the law? And by the way, Paul wrote this in prison. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Keep going, next slide. But before faith came, we were kept under the guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor, our guardian, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. It's gonna be hard for you to comprehend this simply because we've abdicated it for so long, but it's very simple. We've been taught that the law is only there to show us we can't keep it and that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's a myopic view and it's truncating the gospel. Thank you. I have one friend. (laughs) You see, the law is a gift from the Lord. It's a school teacher, it's a guardian for all those who don't know God. And when we establish the moral law, you see, that's what happened. When, when, when Moses stood strong in the face of tyranny, even at the threat of his own people and the tyrant himself, he was immovable. Truth is ridiculed. And then it's violently opposed. And then it becomes self-evident. Requires courage. Very few stand. Moses did. He stood. Ten plagues came. One man in God constitutes a majority. The plagues came and brought this tyrant to his knees. The last of the plagues is the longest running family meal in world history. The Passover. The blood would cover the door. The blood of the lamb. The blood would be placed where it also appear on the stations of the cross, depicting the future crucifixion of our king. When the angel of death would pass over the home that was covered in the blood of the lamb, the firstborn would live, and the houses that did not be, were not covered in the blood, their firstborn would die. And that was Pharaoh's house, and that hit home. And Pharaoh finally yielded to the power of God, and he came to realize 
when he asked the question, who is God, that I should obey him, he found that out. He relented and released three to five million slaves and his economy imploded. And then he questioned what he had done and he relented and he sent his army out to return them. And then once again, Moses was trapped, Red Sea in front of him, mountain ranges on either side and a massive army behind him. And the three to five million Jews who had exited Egypt with all of the possessions of the Egyptians Their clothes would not wear out. Their shoes would not wear out. There would be manna every morning. Water where water wasn't. Quail blown off course until it would come out their nostrils. And Moses was at the banks of the Red Sea and the people wanted to kill him. And he realizes, God, this is your problem. God parts the Red Sea, creates a light for for the Israelites to pass in abstract darkness for the Egyptians to be confused, gets them to the other side, drowns Pharaoh's army, has the Israelites build a monument to remember. They celebrate once again Passover and they're in the wilderness being provided for. And for 40 years, their clothes don't wear out, their shoes don't wear out. A man is provided every morning and water every day. But the greatest miracle of all that's forgotten And this is the hope for America and our founders found it when they dug deep. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God gave him a downloaded moral app, the Decalogue, the first constitutional republic in the history of the world. The republic side of it was when Jethro said to Moses, appoint godly men who are not covetous, who love the law over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, federal, state, county, local. The constitution of that constitutional republic was the Decalogue. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no idols, make no idols. You won't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You'll keep the Sabbath day and honor it. You'll honor your mother and father. You will not commit murder. You'll not steal, you will not covet. You won't bear false witness. You won't commit adultery. I got the last one wrong. But that's okay, you didn't help me either. (laughs) And God instructed him to teach the children and place it in the center of the community. And he did that. And when he came down the mountain, the entire nation was in debauchery with a golden calf, with a rave party. If you don't know what a rave party is, I know we all look a little older in here. (laughs) It's a party with bumping music and neon lights with ecstasy pills. And Aaron is the DJ. And when confronted, he says, this golden calf, it just, we threw it in the fire and look at what happened. If you read deeper, you'll see it in the, no, I'm just kidding. He rebukes them instructs the children and places the law in the center of the community. And here's the greatest miracle. Three to five million people lived together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army. That's the power of the moral law. Do we have any more slides? Yeah. 
Faith came, we were kept under guard by the law and for uh, the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. We did that. Next one. You can't repent if you're unaware of your offense. You're wandering and hopeless, but there is a way back. You will never know what sin is until the law is applied. And the only way the law is applied is for Christians to understand the Decalogue and understand that from the moral law comes civil law. And as John Adams said, only a moral people can govern a republic. If you do not instruct your children in the Ten Commandments, and that is the impetus for every civil law you put in place, and you contend in the ecclesia, the public square, while we've been busy doing church, the secular progressive left has dominated the ecclesia. Jesus co-opted a secular term used by Aristotle hundreds of years before he ever said it at Caesarea Philippi. He didn't say synagogue. He didn't use a religious term. He said ecclesia. And when Tyndale translated from the original language into the first English speaking Bible, he used the word assembly and the king so irritated that anyone would challenge his tyranny had Tyndale hung and his remains burned. And the word he translated to was assembly. He never used the word church. And its truest meaning, according to Aristotle, means public square or city hall. And read the passage when he says to Peter at Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Jeremiah. He says, but who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven and upon this rock I'll build my ecclesia the public square, the city hall, and the gates of hell, gates and slave. But the moral law sets free. Next, please. This is in the stairwell of the law school at Harvard. It's been invoked every year since 1911. And the man who originated was a Christian man. And he coined this term, the laws of the wise restraints that make men free. You apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence. Any athlete understands that. I made the senior nationals in the Olympic trials because when my classmates were out partying on Friday night, I was in bed up at four o'clock in the water by five, finished by seven and back in the water at four, swimming till six, back in bed at nine. And I did that for four years in a row. Any parent who's raising children, when they want to eat candy and they want to play the Xbox, you apply restraints towards evil in order to pursue excellence because freedom is having choices. But freedom only comes when liberty is applied and liberty is doing what's right. And the law is the wise restraints that make you free. And the law is this idea, it doesn't save, but it preserves and it makes you free. And when America applied the moral law to its nation and recognized God in its birth certificate and throughout its entire founding, we represent 4% of the world's population, yet we have more patents, Nobel Peace Prize winners, more symphonies, more accumulation of wealth than any nation on the face of the earth. Canada has greater land mass and resources. The reason why we're, if you ride in an elevator, it was invented by an American. You, you fly in an airplane, it was invented by an American. You do air conditioning, invented by an American. You, you inter, listen to the internet, it was invented by an American, not Al Gore. It's, it's all Americans who have done that because we have freedom and innovation because we've been able and given the ability to pursue excellence because we apply restraints because we understand the moral law and that comes from the church. And that's our job. Next one. How do restraints make you free? Next one. 
Nationalism is not exclusion, it's priority. Nations are a further layer, an extension of family. Christian citizens are meant to possess a love for their country. That is unique in its priority to other countries, but this does not mean an exclusion to. It's just a common sense order of priority like that of a family and a church. This is G.K. Chesterton next. The historic reality is that the regimes which have denied the existence of God and followed the atheistic or hard secularist political philosophy have demonstrated the least regard for human rights. Next, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the nations the powers of the earth, the separate and equal stations to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation stop. I'm out of time. I wanna share with you two stories if I may, or am I too late? My father had three tours of Vietnam. I miss him very much. My mom passed away as well. I led them to Christ later in life. I remember May 26, 1975. My dad had three tours of Vietnam and it was Memorial Day. I lived in Coronado, California, a sleepy Navy town at the time, and I was gonna go surfing with my buddies. I was 10 years old. My birthday would be August of that year, and my dad said, get in the car. My relationship with my father was strained because he had been gone in Vietnam and he was a man I didn't recognize and if anyone's been in a Navy family, you know what if I speak. I got in the car with my father and we didn't say much the entire drive and we went down north on the coastal freeway and entered into a Marine base called Camp Pendleton. <laughs> Semper Fi. Crisp salute from the Marine Corporal to my Navy Captain Father. We entered into the bowels of Camp Pendleton and came over the hill and my 10 year old eyes beheld a sea of tents more than I'd ever experienced in all my life. I didn't know what it was. We parked the car and got out, my dad still silent, walked to the desk where there were more Marines stationed. They saluted my father yet again. He gave them a card they peeled through some files, found the location and gave him directions and we began to walk through this massive tent city that was filled with sights and sounds and smells I had never experienced in my 10 years on this earth and the people there were all Vietnamese. We stopped in one of the tents and out comes a man who salutes my father, his name was Major Nguyen, he said Captain McCoy, and he salutes him, he says, Major, we're family now, no salutes. He says, sir, I've married since we last talked. He said, get your wife, we're going home. Mrs. Nguyen came out, she was younger than the Major. She didn't speak any English and she was from a rural village in Vietnam. I sat in the back seat with her as my father and the Major recounted their time together in Vietnam and we made sign language in the back seat. We got to the house and my mother had just redecorated the kitchen and she was a meticulous housekeeper that when she would vacuum the carpet, she'd leave lines in it. You'd have to fly from one room to the next so as not to leave it. (laughs) 
Mrs. Nguyen was um, scared to death. She was a newlywed and she was young. She was from a rural village. My mother did not allow fried food in the house. She hated the smell of fried food and God forbid fried fish. Well, of course, Mrs. Nguyen wanted to impress her husband and she's cooking fried fish on my mother's brand new stove and it catches fire. And she does what any Vietnamese woman would do in a rural village, she kicks it into the dirt, which happened to be the new carpet and it caught fire. And I thought, oh, you are gonna die. I was 10 years old, I was watching this. My mother got down on her knees and comforted her and put out the fire. She was shaking. My mother held her. I didn't understand. She kept saying, it's okay. I took my mother aside and I said, I don't understand. She just burned our new carpet. You would have killed me. (laughs) You want to make an impression on a 10 year old? Try this. She looked me in my eyes. She said, Rob, they've lost their country. We can replace the carpet. Mr. and Mrs. Nguyen went on to have children and every time they'd have one, they'd call my mother and they would ask her to name the child. At the death of both of my folks, the Nguyen family showed up in force, doctors and lawyers, professors. They honored my mom and dad. And we were family. You're Americans not because of your ethnicity, but because of the ideals that God has given us freedom. And the church is the place where it must be protected. And God has appointed you for such a time as this. And you, my brother, have blessed me more than you know. May God bless this ministry in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I told you, I told you it was going to get better and better. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, just a few announcements before we break for lunch. I wanted to let everybody know that there's going to be a book signing during the lunch break for Mario Murillo on the concourse. Also, um, we will have prayer ministry here. If our prayer ministers are available, they can come forward now. I wanted to talk about the lunch ticket. If you bought one, as I mentioned earlier, you need to have a little yellow sticker or whatever color it is, I'm not sure, on your name badge. It's pink, 
Uh, okay, if you don't have that and you bought a lunch ticket, then just go uh, by the um, registration table and you can get yours, okay? So, and then uh, also if you did not buy a lunch ticket, don't worry, uh, we have cafes uh, throughout this area and they have lots of great options for you. And then please remember to visit our booths and, and exhibitors, especially those who are across the way into the banquet hall or what we call the barn. There's some great organizations there and I want you guys to take a, advantage of that. Also, the uh, bookstore is open, uh, Andrew's resource table. And then please ba be back here in the auditorium. I'm gonna say by 1.40, okay, by 1.40. And uh, we'll get started with our afternoon, or our next speaker, who's gonna be David Barton. All right, so bless you guys, you're dismissed for lunch.